0: I want you to know. You make us all look better just being on staff. I want you to know that. Amen. Y'all give it up for Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. You can take that there. Amen. All right, men. You ready? I want to Obviously, well, you're not ready, so let's get ready. Um, I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Numbers chapter 13. We'll be in Numbers 13 and 14. I'll share a little bit about that in a minute, about why we're there. You know, this, this message started out as a Father's Day message, and then uh, Kenneth was going to be gone, and um, so I didn't get a chance to preach it then. It's changed, it's morphed quite a bit between back in June until today, but it was designed for us men to be encouraged along the way. I think we have a tendency, and men, you can nod if you agree with them, I think we have a tendency in our churches today to beat you guys up. Yes or no? Isn't that right? I think we have a tendency to feel this guilt or shame or where we lack along the way, and we're reminded uh, about it all the time, that we should spend more time with our kids, that we should just think of others before we think of ourselves, that we should just be more forgiving and less angry in life, that we should be just the spiritual leader Of our home and we feel this sometimes and we know we fall short and sometimes we feel like we just keep getting beaten up and beaten up and beaten up and by the way the church does a horrible job of beating you up all the time we do culture beats you up all the time that's not my intent this morning all right men that's not my intent this morning i want to encourage you along the way you know us men we didn't take graduate classes to know how to be a man did we now, in fact, you know, we got our car keys, you know, our, our parents, for some of us, we had to work for that first car, and, and, you know, we got that first set of car keys, and we thought at 16 we were finally a man because we had a car. Didn't work that way, did it? Especially after the first speeding ticket, we realized that we weren't a man yet. Our dad was reminded us that. that. And, and, and then we graduate from high school, and we think, maybe that's the magic moment that I become a man. And then we realize that, man, I have a lot to learn along the way, and I make mistakes along the way. And then we kind of go off to college, and we graduate from college, and we think, maybe this is the time that I have become a man. My point is, is that I think going through life, sometimes we want to go, when is that time come when we actually become a man? Maybe it's your first child. Four weeks ago today, sitting right over there, my daughter was giving birth to her first baby. She was in contractions. She was timing them. By the way, there's no excuse not to be at church, right? If, if you're giving birth to a baby on a Sunday morning. And we went to the hospital that night, and, and I, I can remember Mitch. You know, we couldn't go into the hospital, and so Mitch there at Grandview, he's got the baby, like you know, Simba just holding it up into the window, saying, so, "You know, I'm I'm now a dad." And and then we we saw him, you know, the next day, and he had these eyes about him. He was like going, I'm a dad, but I have no idea what I'm supposed to do because, you know, I didn't take any graduate classes to become a dad, right? I'm not a dad. I go in the hospital. I come out a dad. What am I supposed to do? Today's sermon is called Men of Action. And men of action are rarely perfect. I want you to hear this. Men of true action in life are rarely perfect. In fact, perfection should never be the goal for us men. Rather, God desires us men to be men who seek him with everything that's in us, all of our hearts. And to do so with an urgency that is rooted in actions, not perfection. So in the immortal words of Aaron Rodgers, let's just relax. Okay? Man, let's just relax. Let's just relax. It's not about perfection. It's not about all these checklists of do's and don'ts. It's about just taking action in your life. Roger Dreyer took action, right? He knew something was missing in his life. He knew it wasn't right. It didn't feel right. Everybody else, had this joy about him. He didn't feel that in his life. And he took action. He says, I need to know the truth. I need to know what it means. It's not about perfection, y'all. It is about action. So, if your doctor said, on the day you were born, we have a boy. By the way, that's how they used to do the gender reveal thing back in the day. You got a boy. If the doctor said that about you, today's message is for you, okay? Everybody got it? All right. Numbers 13 and 14. Let me just set the table, and we're going to read some Scripture, and then we're going to dive into this. So in Numbers, what we see here is, in this particular area, we see Moses has taken the nation of Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt, right, they crossed the Red Sea, and they, God was doing all this miraculous stuff. And, and by the way, they haven't been in the desert for 40 years yet. Okay, They've only been in the desert a, a, a few amount of months, maybe a year or so. And God has led them to the banks, to the very precipice of the promised land that he had promised them as a nation to give them. And here in this passage, the Lord speaks to Moses, so here we are in Numbers chapter 13. Let me just read a few verses. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and he said, Send men to scout out the land of Canaan. I am giving to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the Lord's command. All the men were leaders in Israel. So here's Moses. He hears from the Lord. And the Lord says, I want you to send 12 of these spies, one from each tribe, who are considered leaders. In other words, probably what Moses is referring to, that when they come back, they're going to listen to them. Their tribe is going to listen to them, and they'll follow. So for 40 days, they go into the land of Canaan, and they scout it out. And they're going to bring back some of the crops and all. So let's go on and keep reading. I want you to jump over to verse 26 in Numbers chapter 13. So they've been out in the land. They come back to report what they have seen. Verse 26, the men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, we went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here is some of its fruit. So they show them what they found. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said these words. In other words, he was feeling a little angst taking place. He was feeling as if this is going the wrong direction as these men, these leaders were giving this report. And he says these words in verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, we must go up and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. But the men who had gone up with them responded, we can't go up against the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we, we passed through to explore is one with the, that devours all of its inhabitants and all the people we saw in it are men of great size. So all of a sudden, this this thing that was supposed to be a good thing, that God was going to give them the promised land and send out these leaders in which the scout and bring back this positive report about everything that's there, became very negative. Caleb spoke up. Chapter 14. Then the whole community, all the Israelites, broke into loud cries and the people wept that night. And the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron. And the whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into the land to die by the sword? Our wives and little children would become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell down with their faces to the ground in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who scattered out the land, tore their clothes. Literally, they were in anguish about the whole thing. They were in agony about what was taking place. And they said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. So you have these these two groups. You have 10 of these spies who are given this negative report, all of which are considered leaders of their tribes. And then you have two, Joshua and Caleb. And they're being faithful. They understand that God had promised them this land. And by the way, they'd seen God do some mighty things, right? How quickly we forget. I want you to look in verse 36 as we close out chapter 14. So the men Moses sent to scout out the land. By the way, as we get to this, the Lord goes to Moses and says, Because of the disobedience of the nation of Israel and these spies... For every day that they were in the land is going to be one year of you being in the wilderness, not going to the promised land. Forty years. Forty years. Seems kind of steep, doesn't it? Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Forty years. And then then the Lord tells Moses, and by the way, everybody over the age of 20, none of them are going to see the promised land. They're all going to die in the next 40 years. They won't see it. So we come down to verse 36. So the men Moses sent to scout out the land and who had returned and incited the entire community to complain about him by spreading a negative report about the land. Those men who spread the negative report about the land were struck down by the Lord. You guys want me to interpret that, men? Huh? The Lord killed them. God killed them right there. He says, no more. Verse 38. Only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, remained alive of those men who went to scatter out the land. And we know the rest of the story. Joshua and Caleb were the only two of those spies. And by the way, they were a bit older at this stage. They weren't under the age of 20. God spared their lives because they were obedient. They tried to do the right thing. And they were able to see the promised land. In fact, we will know. and We'll we'll talk about it here in a minute. Joshua was appointed the leader of Israel to do that. So what does that mean for us today as men? What can we find within these scripture passages? Words of encouragement for us today. And be able to navigate as a leader in our homes and where God has placed us. I have a few assumptions to get started. Here's assumption number one. You are a man who has a real relationship with Christ. Roger, who I just baptized, an example of one who sat in your place for years and didn't have that genuine, true relationship with Christ. But you're a man who has that genuine relationship with Christ and now you want to do something else. Number two, you are a man who desires to be blessed and encouraged. I don't know why we wouldn't want to be blessed, right, man? We all want to be blessed. We all want to be encouraged. And number three, The third assumption is you are a man who wants to lead his family or your future family well. I'm going to assume these three things for us men in here today. If you're a man who doesn't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the thing that you need to hear today is there's hope in Jesus Christ. That's your first starting point. Get to know him as your Lord and Savior. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. You don't know Jesus, that's your first starting point. All right, a man of action Number one, to be a man of action, that man has to remain committed in the face of opposition. Remember Joshua and Caleb coming back? They had all this opposition, all these other leaders who had gone into the promised land and came back were giving this negative report. And then here's Caleb in verse 30 there of chapter 13. He comes back and he says, hey, no. He quieted the people. We must go and take possession of this land. In the midst of opposition... Caleb remained committed to the task at hand. The question is, in the face of opposition, who is your opposition today, men? Who is it that opposes you? And by the way, it's not your wife. I know it seems that way at times, but it's not your wife. And when I was playing ball, it was interesting because the further I got up in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, land of, of playing competitive basketball. The further up I go, the, the more strategic we always got. So in high school, when we were playing a team, we had a scattering report, but it was a very vague thing. And, you know, Bill's our leading scorer. Jimmy, you're going to guard Bill. I never guarded the leading scorer for a reason. You know, that kind of stuff. So we had this kind of vague scattering report about who the opposition was. And they had one about us as well. Then you get up to the college level and then there's this written report that comes out and and we would have, you know, a couple pages on on things they like to do. And and they did the same thing to us. They got these reports about us and our tendencies. And when I got to the next level, the NBA, you, you would have this large thing of the opposition. And they would have the same thing about you. In other words, the team you're getting ready to play, they have this scattering report on Rick, and that scattering report probably said something like this. You know, Rick's really strong with his right hand. So you want to take his right hand away. You want to make him go left. And and, and Rick loves to shoot the ball on the run. So he'll come off a pick, and he loves to shoot a mid-range jump shot. Of course, back then we had no three-point line. Some of them may have been, hey, Rick can get in foul trouble because he doesn't move his feet quick enough. So make sure you attack Rick. So they had this scattering report on my weaknesses and then also on my strengths. And let me ask you a question. The guy who was guarding me, was he going to attack my strengths or was he going to attack my weaknesses? Weaknesses, right? He was going to attack those areas of my life where I was weakened because he knew if he could do that and get me to stumble and to the fall, they had a better chance of winning. Your opposition is Satan in life. And by the way, Satan has a scattering report on every single man in this room. He knows your strengths, he knows your weaknesses, and he knows your tendencies. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this. It says, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. Now this was written in some... 2,000 years ago. I would say that is true today, amen? We live in a dark world that is controlled by Satan himself. Your opposition is a pretty stout dude. And he knows every little thing about you. John 8, 44 says it this way. It says, Jesus is addressing Jews who are opposing him. And Jesus says, you are, the, you are of your father, the devil, And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Just so you know, Satan, he is a liar. There is no truth in him. He is a deceiver. There is no love in him. Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. That word tactics literally means deceive or trick. In other words, guys, hopefully we have enough common sense, right, in life. And he's going to try to trick you. He's going to deceive you along the way. That's who he is. That's who he will always be. And he is a killer. There is no compassion in him. There's none. First Peter 5, 8 says, be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. <laughs> that picture of, of a lion devouring, that word devour, literally means to swallow up. He doesn't want to leave pieces of you. He wants to kill you to the point where you are swallowed up. There is nothing left of You, men, you getting the picture here? If you think that you can manage this life, you can lead your family, if you think that you can be these things along the way because you're smart enough or you have enough experience, I want you to know Satan has you right where he wants you. Your pride will be your weakness. And I promise you, you will fall. He will tempt you, he will deceive you, He will lie, and the only thing he wants to do is kill you. He wants to literally swallow you up. Why in the world would we ever, ever give Satan a foothold in our lives? James tells us here how to go about not giving Satan a foothold, this opposition. He says, therefore submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So how do we do this, men? How do we fight the opposition? Because I'm not smart enough in which to do it. There has to be something else in my life that helps me manage and navigate this thing called life. The first thing I have to do, according to this verse, is submit to God. It's a military term, meaning to arrange the troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. When I was at the Citadel, we had parades every Saturday. And we had a formation we were in. And the commander of our company would give out these, these calls. He, he would command us to do certain things along the way. That's what this picture is, is to, when we submit to the Lord. We literally yield to, the God, to God's commands. Now, there's a whole number, no, uh, another sermon in here, man, about, about how we yield and what does it take to yield. But I want you to know to submit to God means I'm yielding to him And what he wants for my life. The second thing he says, resist the devil. You have to withstand or oppose him. It takes you making hard choices. And listen, us men, sometimes it takes us having a little bit of backbone along the way. Y'all hear me? Some backbone along the way. We live in this culture where we're so afraid to say anything that's going to ruffle anybody's feathers. And listen, I'm not telling you to be mean. I'm not telling you to to be crass about things. I want you to be like Jesus. But listen, we have to confront the devil. We have to stand against him. And sometimes it requires us making some hard choices along the way. Let's make those hard choices. And then it says, draw near to God. It's a term used of the priest who would bring sacrifices into the temple to worship God. I don't know what your Sunday is like, men. I can only assume because, to be honest with you, since I've been married, which has been 35 years, I've never been at home to bring my wife to church. Since she's known me, I've been a pastor. So early in the morning, on Sunday mornings, I'm getting ready, Rick's getting ready, and I'm coming to church to be prepared for whatever God has in store for me that day. I was a student pastor, I had to have a bunch of students, whatever it was. I know some of you men, you don't have that luxury to get out of the house and not have to do anything, just come to church. But what does your Sunday look like? How are you preparing yourself when you come to church to receive what God wants you to receive? If all you're doing is checking the box, getting in a car, and coming to church, I want you to know Satan is already beginning to get a foothold. There should be something in your life that goes, Okay, Lord, what is it that you want from me today? What is it that you need from me today along the way? That's how we draw near to God. As the priest would bring sacrifices, they're thinking about it. What do we need to do to please our Lord and Savior? So a man of action remains committed in the face of opposition. Number two, a man of action sees mentoring as a gift and not a sign of weakness. Everybody hear me? Having somebody else in your life is a gift, And it's not a sign of weakness by saying, I need somebody else to help me along the way. Why was Joshua chosen by God to replace Moses? We really don't know. But we do know that Moses had 40 years while they wandered in the desert to pour into Joshua, don't we? Why was Joshua chosen to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land and not Caleb? It's a question you can ask when you get to heaven. Don't know. Deuteronomy 34.9, as, as they're getting prepared to take the nation of Israel into, this is after 40 years of being wandering in the desert, and they're getting ready to go in the promised land. It says there, Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him and, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses spent time, laid his hands on him, commissioned him to be the new leader going forward. What is a mentor? By definition, it's an experienced and trusted advisor. Paul writes these words to Timothy in Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. He says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is Paul mentoring Timothy. Joshua 1.1. So now they're going into the promised land, and, and, and God has this conversation with Moses In John 1, I mean Joshua 1.1, but it says in Joshua 1.1, after the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua who had served Moses. God was Moses' mentor. And Moses was Joshua's mentor. Mentoring requires these three things. It requires accountability. You have to be engaged and be available. Right, Frank? Amen. You have to be engaged. And you have to be available. So it requires accountability. It requires trust. You have to be honest, believable, and passionate. And it requires you being vulnerable. You have to be transparent and open to criticism. And by the way, us guys, we have a hard time with that, don't we? (laughs) We don't want anybody telling us where we lack. I mean, it's hard, especially when when your wives recognize it. And and your wife says, you know, hon, hmm," we kind of want to go, really don't want to hear it from you. It's really tough when your son or your daughter comes to you and says the same thing, right? But that's why you have somebody in your life as a mentor to go, you know what? There's some things in your life that you don't see. And you deceive them. Steve Jobs. Everybody know who that is? Okay. Steve Jobs mentored Mark Zuckerberg. Warren Buffett mentored Bill Gates, Steven Spielberg mentored J.J. Abrams, and Dennis Cantrell. You don't know him. He mentored Rick Swain. Dennis Cantrell is not with us today. He died of cancer about five years ago. But Dennis Cantrell was my mentor. He took the time, he took effort he made sure that Rick Swing understood that he, he doesn't have to go through this life by himself. And he walked with me. Men, you need a mentor to help you face the opposition that we just talked about. Here's number three. A man of action testifies the truth in the presence of sin. Remember there at the beginning of Numbers chapter 14, the whole Israeli community rebelled against Moses and Aaron then you come down here and you have Joshua and you have Caleb and they rip their clothes in anguish about what was taking place. And I want you to know it says there that Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephuniah, who were among those who scattered out the land, tore their clothes and said to the Israelite, the land we passed through and explored is extremely good. They wanted to stone them. They wanted to kill them. They were sinful they were being disobedient to the call of God upon the nation of Israel. Men, I want you to know we have to testify the truth in the presence of sin all around us. Luke 17, 3 says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him and move forward, right? That's why you have somebody in your life who says, Rick, you know, you're not perfect, Rick. And by the way, I'm not. And I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. I'm this man who is tempted by this world. And I need men like Frank and others in my discipleship group to hold me accountable for what God's called me to be. The Apostle Paul confronted the Apostle Peter about his hypocrisy in Antioch in Galatians 2, verse 14. It says, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, this is Paul writing, I told Cephas, who is Peter, in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like a Jew? So there was this, these, these Judaites from Jerusalem who came to Antioch And they believed that if a Gentile was going to be saved, that he had to show that by being circumcised. And Peter was intimidated by these Judaizers from Jerusalem. And and he began to withdraw from the Gentiles and that Jewish community there that he had ate with and ate certain foods with. And started to be like these Judaizers. And Paul says, hey, (laughs) I really don't care who you are. I know that you were one of, one of the Lord's 12. I know that you were one of those inner three, but what you're doing is sin. And Paul was willing to testify against that sin. He wanted to testify the truth to Peter. And I want you to know that I will guarantee you, because Peter was one who wanted to follow Jesus, he may have felt ooh, strange at the moment, But I'll guarantee you, Peter grew from it. He grew from it because of that being held accountable, somebody testifying the truth in the presence of sin in your life. Here's the point. If we're going to protect that which is most precious to us, our faith and our families, you have to be willing to stand up to sin by the strength of God's word because we live, y'all, in a lost and sinful world. Amen? You have kids that you're trying to raise in this lost and sinful world. And if you don't testify the truth in the midst of this sinful world, who will? Who will? Number four, a man of action accepts responsibility as part of leadership. Numbers 14, verse 38 It says, only Joshua and Caleb remained alive of those men who went to scout out the land. You would think that we would have an argument with the Lord by saying, you know what, I I did the right thing, God. I did exactly what you told me to do. You had promised us this land, we went in and scouted, and we came against all those folks who came back saying, oh, we shouldn't go because we'll be killed and slaughtered. I did the right thing. You know what a true leader does? He accepts the responsibility of those who he leads. So what happened to Joshua and Caleb for the next 40 years? What happened to them? They wandered in the desert for the next 40 years because of the sin and disobedience of the people that they led. You all hear me? So many times, we, we'll want to deflect the responsibility. You know, it's the world's fault, and, and it's COVID's fault, and it's you name it. Instead of just owning up and saying, no, let's figure this out. Let, let's make the best of this going forward. Let's learn from this, and let's accept responsibility for what my family has and what we do. My sons, um, you know, they weren't perfect either because they were like their dad, all right? full of mischief. So when they were like four and five, I was a student pastor over in Mississippi, and we just built this new um, recreation center, which was really cool, and in, in the bed where, the, where the, the bushes and flowers were, um, instead of having dirt and mulch, they had these, these little rocks like that, okay? Well, Joshua, who was five, looked at Jordan, who was four, and said, hey, I'll bet you you can't throw that rock over the church. I bet you can't do it. Now, I wasn't in their midst at the time. I was doing what pastors should do, right? I was doing something else. <laughs> and so they're, they're beside the, the building, and sure enough, Jordan picks up one of those rocks. And the building was, I don't know, three stories tall, and it was about 30 yards away, and he's four. Okay. <laughs> he let her fly. And Jordan, I hope you're watching this over in down in Mexico. That's where he's playing right now. He let it fly. It didn't make it. It went right through the third story window. Just shattered it. Well, the boys knew they were what? They were in deep, deep, I mean, deep trouble. So somebody came and told me about it. So I went out to them. Now, they're five and four. Who is responsible for that window being broken? Was it Josh who who said, hey, Jordan, I don't think you can do it"? Was it Josh, his brother? No. Was it Jordan, who was four, who wanted to prove a point? No, he wasn't responsible. He may have broke the window, but he wasn't responsible. You know who was responsible? Me. I was responsible. I was responsible for the actions of my boys. And by the way, They got punishment. (laughs) I don't know if they sat down for a week. I was responsible. And who was responsible to fix it? Was it Jordan who was four and Joshua was five? I was responsible. Listen, I was responsible to fix their mistake. A true leader, a man of action, will always accept responsibility as part of leadership. Man, it's not enough for us to say that we're the leader of our home. It is when you embrace that you are responsible for your family and you are willing to hang in there through the grace of God that you find that you really are the leader of your family. And it's so true. I think that's one of the biggest deficiencies that I find in my life. Especially in the culture we live in today, it's so easy, y'all, to blame everything else for what goes wrong. It just is. But ultimately, the Lord looks at me as being responsible for my family. The Lord looked at Joshua and Caleb, who were leaders, as part of the responsibility of what took place that day. And they suffered the 40 years of consequence That everybody else did. So Rick, what are you asking us men to do? Here's my impact point this morning. The foundation of a man of action is rooted, listen to this, is rooted in the love of Christ and how you as a man expresses that love. It is not a picture of perfection. It is a picture and one of what? Action. It's not about perfection, man. Nobody's asking you to be perfect. Nobody's saying is that you have the letter of the law. You have, you have to live up to every one of those expectations. We want to strive to do that. But you will stumble and you will fall just like me. It's not a picture of perfection. It's one of action. It's one of saying, I am willing to take one more step. Whatever that looks like, Lord. One more step. And the only way I do that is because of the love of Christ that's in my life. Here's our impact verse, and this is one I'd love for every man to, to memorize. So, ladies, this is be your job this week. Ladies, y'all listening? Make sure your man memorizes this verse. It's 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, and this is what it says. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like a man, be strong, and then verse 14. Your every action must be done with love. We stay alert. We stand firm in the faith. We act like a man. In other words, that's a picture of being courageous. And we're strong, not because of what I can do. It says, let your every action be done in love. You do all of those in the picture of love, which comes through Christ.